So, as many of you know, the Bible is one book, but it's 66 books within it, broken up into two sections. One we call the Old Testament, which has 39 books, uh, the New Testament having 27. One author conveying truth through many writers. It's really important to remember that because, you know, sometimes we may go, well, you know, I really liked that passage, that verse out of Second Peter. That's great. God has allowed you to know the, the vessel that he brought his truth through, but it isn't Peter's word. Does that make sense? You know, because historically, humanity, people, we tend to lift up an instrument. It happened with Moses. It happened, and we, God has designed us for order and leadership. But he has warned us against idolatry and, and literally, you know, putting too much emphasis. So it's really cool because you think God has inspired these, these writers, these people. He's, it's the heart of God revealed through his people. And so here his heart is revealed to the people. Um, they're conveying his truth. Within the Bible, there's many different styles and types of writing. You have poetry. We have songs. Um, we have Proverbs, which are axioms or, or truths that you can, you can just take hold of and, and, and see how they play out. Uh, I've shared with you in the past that, you know, as I read through the Bible, I have different approaches and, and different systems, so to speak, or just kind of disciplines. And one that I've embraced for a few years now is I read the proverb of the day, the chapter. So say chapter on the 14th, I read chapter 14. And I've just done that year after year. And I've found that it's it's not actually repetitive. It's, it's a truth. It's not meant to be an absolute. If you do this, this will absolutely happen. But it's interesting how you see God's word as you engage with people who, who don't have an interest in God whatsoever. But you see these truths and principles manifested regardless of, of their mindset. And so I've found it to be helpful. It's a type of writing within scripture. Um, we have history. We have narrative, which conveys a, a story. Uh, much of the Bible also is, we could say, biographical. Uh, the uh, literature, literary types we see also as parables, where you know Jesus spoke in parables. He's taken a spiritual truth, but he's putting it alongside a physical truth. He, he lays it alongside to convey, in a natural sense, what the spiritual point is. So he ta- taught with parables, so to stir people to think. Because many times they're like, what is he talking about? So he actually, his, par- his disciples come to him and say, what do these parables mean? And he explained to them, that I'm laying these things alongside one another, so what you know here, you can see the deeper truth. It is very similar, actually deep, much deeper. Um, we have also specific letters. You see those in the New Testament. Um, we even have prophetic literature or, or prophecy. And so I think it's important, I mention these things because it's important to know what you're reading. You know, you could be reading history and it could have poetry within the text, but if you're reading the Psalms, your application, your interpretation, the way you process that is going to be different than the way you would read a history, right? So if something's comparing, it's like this, you know that that type of literature is, is comparative, it's showing but if something says, this is what happened, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, that's not poetic. That's historical. That's factual. So you, you see what I'm saying? You, knowing the literature style helps you in your interpretation and your understanding. And so what we're going to look at tonight or consider is you can read poetry, for example, which I would mention the Psalms have a poetic style. Not, they're not all poetic exclusively. But then you have prophecy written within the verses you are reading. Um, we could just turn to, uh, let's see, Psalm 22, is for example. Take a look at that. Most of us are familiar with the next one. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But Psalm 22, uh, some of your Bibles will have in an informative subheading, a little insight. It's not what the scripture says. It's just what the, you know, the... Um, publicist has chosen to place in there, mine says specifically, the suffering, praise, and posterity of the Messiah for Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is poetic, yet it's rich with messianic 
prophecy, speaking of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And so we see in verse 16 of, of Psalm 22, and, uh, just in, uh, part, the second part of that, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You don't have to know a whole lot of the New Testament to know exactly what that prophecy is speaking about. So embedded in this poetry is this declaration, which would have seemed somewhat odd at the time. But then, you know, a couple hundred years later, a few hundred years later, Jesus comes on the scene, fulfills his calling, purpose, ministry as fully God and fully man, and then he's, he's nailed to a tree before crucifixion was ever even considered. You know, the Romans were the ones that really kind of perfected it. Others had introduced it in a very barbaric way of torture. But you can see that's very descriptive, agreed? Prophetically, speaking of this will take place. Now, you have to admit, if you were there and, and you were maybe reading this psalm, David was, you know, putting it together, maybe putting it to music, you'd be going like, I have no clue what he's talking about. I have no clue what that means. But you see, later it starts making sense. Chapter, this chapter is full of prophetic poetry. What is prophecy? Well, in simple sense, in a clear sense, in the most foundational way, God, it's God's word concerning the future, concerning situations, conditions, events, even sometimes people. Bible prophecies are not predictions. Predictions carry an element of uncertainty. Of uncertainty. They are a possibility, maybe even a probability. An expert's guess, if you would, about a given topic or weather or finances or whatever. Have you guys heard of any famous predictors? I don't think they call them that. Um, Mr. Nostradamus, right? You've heard of him, right? Um, Jean Dixon, wasn't she like a tabloid special? You know, there's just a few others that have a name and notoriety. And if you look at some of the stuff that they've declared, very curious, very interesting. In, in some cases, accurate. But it's not the Spirit of God that's leading them. It's the Spirit of this age. Because they've rejected, and I'm not talking about every one of them. I don't, I don't do the biographical study there. I'm just saying there were predictions and, and there's prophecy. And it's important to understand the difference Prophecy is perfect in fulfillment, biblical prophecy. God doesn't predict that something might happen. He proclaims prophetically, perfectly, what will take place. Nearly a third of the Bible is prophetic in type or nature, which is very interesting if you think about it, because there's a lot there, and it's speaking of things to come. It's speaking, you know, in Genesis of things that have been, but of things that will come as well, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. A man by the name of John Walvoord has a book, Every Prophecy of the Bible. It touches on over a thousand prophecies in the Bible, of which approximately 500 of them have already been fulfilled. So it's, un it's important to understand prophecy is not just end times eschatology, you're, you're, what you believe about the, how things will unfold in the end. It, it, it's embedded, it's an essential part. And I love it because is God obligated to tell us what took place? I mean, is it some mandate that he's supposed to do? He just chose to let us know how things unfolded, which I think is fascinating. He, he literally wants us to make informed decisions, if you would, to, be, to know who he is and, and literally how he is. You know, we can look back on what God said and get a glimpse of the loving nature of God. Prophecy is not just what um, will take place in the future, but what's taken place in the past. And I believe what we can see is that, you know, when it's, what's been fulfilled gives us certainty about what's yet to be fulfilled. So if he's been 100% accurate up to this point, I'm just going to say, probably going to nail the next section too. He's going he's to be, continue to be accurate. Now, how do we know that that reveals truth about his character? Well, I, I like to use uh, John 3.16 as an example of how prophecy helps us to understand God. How do we know that God so loved the world? Just confining your uh, um, thought and, and wondering to John 3.16. So how do we know that, that 
God so loved the world, for he gave his one and only son. So there's an action there. So he, he says, it says, for God so loved the world. Okay. You know, people can say, I love you all the time. But there has got to be a correlating, a corresponding, a connecting um, action to that. He, and he tells us through his word what happened in the beginning. God so loved the world. Well, what world? Well, the world that began according as we're given a glimpse into the creation out of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. In man's relationship to God before sin. And then there's this prophecy about what would happen when we sin. He literally says, you know, do not do this lest you die. Saying in advance. Of course, you know, Adam would have to have it explained to him what death is because death was not present. It was only after the sin of man that death entered the world. And so here God is, is telling us even in advance, you know, if you, when you sin, death will enter the world. Well, how does God deal with the sin? In a loving way. According to John 3.16, God gave himself to deal with sin, for God so loved the world that he gave himself. Because of what we know, guess what? From Genesis. The prophecies, the telling us. Now, so you know, when you're reading through, say, a, an actual prophecy book like Isaiah or much of Daniel, prophecies often have two or three fulfillments. They often have a contemporary, which would speak of the time when it was written. So much of what Isaiah writes, it, it, there's, there's things that just would happen at that time. And there's some that would happen just in the near future. You know, after that, we see some, we're speaking of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and the various tough times in, in Israel's history. God said, this is going to happen because of what you've done. And it took a couple hundred years in some cases before those, you know, near future fulfillments. But then there's also the element of the prophecy that's messianic. It's concerning Jesus, who's the Messiah, and then it's going to come to play out, much like what we read there in Psalm 22, with the messianic content. And there was actually some practical, or to some degree out of Psalm 22, some present day uh, application at that time. So, it's important to understand as we interpret and apply prophetic passages, you know, the content and the type. Now, on your, uh, actually you're not to the handout yet. I told you it's gonna be a bit. We've got one more one, and I'm just gonna touch on this because I believe, how many of you were here last week with, with Anthony? Not, not too many of you? Okay, so I'm just asking because I know he touched on Genesis 3.15, the, the proto-evangelium, the, the first gospel. It was a promise. If you turn with, that, turn with me to that, Genesis 3.15. And this is speaking, the, God is speaking to the deceiver, the serpent, after he has misled and, and, and deceived Adam and Eve. He's speaking in verse 15, I will put enmity, this is Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her singular seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first promise of God for the salvation that will come. Woman's seed speaks of virgin birth. The head um, speaks of authority and power. And it says that I will put enmity between the serpent, you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall, speaking of Jesus, shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Jesus will crush, if you would, his authority and power. And the heel is referring to the cross. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities. When we see that he shall bruise your head, it, it appears Satan has a victory. Can we agree? They got evicted. They got kicked out of the garden. The relationship between God and man has been radically altered because of, of their willingness to go against God's direction and to be, you know, be deceived even though they were warned in advance. It seems that Satan has a victory. That sin was going to win. But you see, God knew what was happening. It, it didn't set God back. God was not surprised because Satan deceived humanity. God's plan is greater than the incident in the Garden of Eden. 
What we know to be true is that, that God is, is greater than, than even man. I, some think of uh, that Garden of Eden time as a time of innocence. I, don't, I think you really have to work the word to say they were innocent. They didn't have an opportunity to exercise a decision, and when they did, they made a bad one. So I don't know. I don't really embrace Have you ever met people that say, well, kids are innocent. It's usually the environment. It's what environment. If, if you have a little boy and you raise him with, with sticks and toys and guns and stuff, and he grows up, grows up to be overly masculine. And it, you know, I'm like, are you, are you single? Do you not have children? I, we never had to train our, our son on how to, to play with a ball. We never had to, to train our daughters how to cuddle sticks like they're a baby. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, I look at it and go, it's not just Western culture. In reality, we weren't born innocent. In reality, we're born with the nature of sin, and we just need an opportunity, quite honestly, to let that be manifested or actually literally to choose to sin. But that's another study all in itself. God's plan is to bring forth redeemed man. And that's the prophecy. We'll look at some prophecy concerning God's plan of redemption for sinful man. Let's consider Isaiah. It's on your hand out there. Isaiah 7.14. Many of these I know some of you are familiar with. And I just want to encourage you as we go through, I love seasonal studies. That's what I call them. It's the season. It is the season. I love digging in. We, we don't limit our studies to that exclusively as far as these particular topics. But I do like to get in and get reminded. And it says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So... Emmanuel means what? God with us. So in Isaiah, written more than 700 years before Jesus' birth, is this, this declaration. And, and we'll see as we, we'll turn here in a minute to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, that you have on your hand out there. Um, we'll see the fulfillment. I want to I mention something while we're here. Some have said that virgin speaks of maiden in the original language. And they, they try to make it sound like it doesn't look like, it, like it's something, really, it's not a miracle for a young woman to become pregnant, okay? A young maiden. It, it would, how could that be a sign? That just doesn't make sense, you know, if you try to, because they interpret it that way to take away the miraculous, to somehow uh, intellectually and often academically try to explain away miracles. If you can explain away miracles, you don't need God. If you can rationalize everything down to human reasoning and say, well, it's because of this and it's because of that, you've eliminated your own desire for God. You've created yourself to be the one who's the decider and the determiner. And, and that's a really uh, bad approach. So let's now hold your finger if you would there. Well, actually, on this one, we won't really have to. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 1 in uh, verse 18. I mentioned you don't have to hold your places there because it actually, in the gospel of Matthew, it, it contains this verse we just looked at there in Isaiah. But let's pick up in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. I'm just going to read to this portion we've referenced, this prophecy. To catch the context. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So we see this beautiful merging and synchronizing, so to speak, of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I love about this particular prophecy, and you find many others as you read through the New Testament, it's, it's pretty simple. When the New Testament 
connects to the Old Testament, you don't have to go connect it. You know what I'm talking about? You don't have to digitally search and see if this is a connective prophecy. The Bible just says these, this is the fulfillment of this, which eliminates a lot of debate. You really can't debate this one. Well, how do you know that that's how Isaiah 7, 14 is applied? Well, I'm just going to go out on a limb because Matthew 1, 23 says so. So we don't have a lot to discuss as far as is it possible? Is it, it's just, it just, it is. And I love it because, you know, it says, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. And we, we were given the context beginning in verse 18, that Mary was with child and Joseph was having a problem with it. He knew that they hadn't been together. So now he's got to do, deal with the reality of his wife-to-be is pregnant, and he had a mind to put her away. He's like, I just, I'm going to take her out of the public scene because this just, I don't know. And, and, and an angel appears to him and says, Joe, just chill a little bit. This that has taken place is a fulfillment of the word of God. This is a fulfillment that the child that's conceived within her is of the Holy Spirit. What a, what a wonderful thing. Because you ever thought about their lives? Because they're young, or, or she is. And everything got turned upside down. I mean, here she's a, a, a teenager, young teenager, who's pregnant and now has to work through in their culture the reality of that. And, and just the, the, the street level processing of how that would unfold and what that would be like. And so we see it's a fulfillment of prophecy. I, I look at this and go, wow. It's not just a contemporary thing. It's not just an American Christianity thing. It's a historical declaration from God making known to humanity hundreds of years apart. This is what's going to happen. And over 700 years later, it happens perfectly in fulfillment. And we're only going to touch on two. We'll go from here to, to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So you go to Isaiah, you went too far, head back to the right until you get to Micah. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Um, and you'll find in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I love this one too, because we see in Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So this little no-name mountain hometown, this little Bethlehem, little, little burp, so to speak, in the big picture of cities, it was nothing. That's why it's even mentioned that you're the, the little, even among the, the people of the tribe of Judah, the thousands of Judah, there's this, this Bethlehem. Now if you go from there, roll back to Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, we find in verse 1, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, of, Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Gentile, or rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we see an application here. I love it because you look at this and go, wow. You know, here Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and the king wants to know what's going on because he'd heard this rumor. And all of Jerusalem knew what that said. There's a king on the scene. No, we have a king. It's a Roman king. He's like, no, there's going to be this other one. And then, of course, King Herod also, he's like, okay, wait, what's going on here? Because, you know, it was said it was better to be Herod's pet than to be one of his relatives. The pets had a longer life. He tended to kill people because anybody who was a threat to him. So you see what's connected again? This was fulfillment, verse 5, for thus it is written by the prophet. And I love these parts because, you know, sometimes we, we overthink things. Sometimes life gets a little complicated and a little harried and a little busy and whatever. 
then it's just so important to stop and go, wait a minute, God has said in times past of the things, the way it's going to be. And he even spoke of the birth of Christ, and he, and he told how it would be, not, you know, he told, not only told of, of when and where and how, and he even spoke of why. We've covered two prophecies, and I have one chart that's just easy to go back and forth and just look at these, that has like 40. And I, I think it's a, an underestimate, like I put on your paper, that there's well over 100 prophecies concerning Jesus' life or his birth and his life. And, and that's specific, like we've just looked at. Um, we know there's many more concerning his purposes and stuff, which is what we're going to look at now with uh, some of the time we have left. And that is, you know, the purpose of his coming. Let's consider the purposes that Jesus came to accomplish. So on your handout, it says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. We've just studied 1 John. Um, you can glance at that if you want to see the context. The, the passage is right there before you. I've chosen to underline it for emphasis. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. So don't you love it when you have those passages that you don't have to like really kind of you know, strain the cranium, <laughs> you know, it just says, right, you want to know why he came, what is one of his purposes? Well, to destroy the works of the devil. So it wasn't a, a, a reactionary plan. It wasn't like, oh, wait, he just messed up with the kids. He just messed the, up the kids in the Garden of Eden. It, it was in place before anything. It's, it's, that's what's confusing to many people. Well, if God knew man was going to sin, why didn't God make man different? If God knew this, then why didn't he prevent them from, from doing that? Why did he allow this? It's, it's like these little, you know, we've got these little bitty brains and we're trying to fit God in to our logic and reasoning. And it's just, you have to admit, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know all the details. It makes sense. I, can, I could throw a few things out that, that are more than suggestions. They're, they're answers to those questions. We know that for love to be loved, there has to be a choice to love. You can't mandate, you can't just make someone love. You, you know, God could have wired us where we could repeat, I love you, God. And he could have just made it, we did that, he could have made us like a machine. But we know that's not the love that he speaks of. And so it, it's required. Love has to have a choice. And so humanity has the choice. Now you could say, well, gosh, it seems like a pretty high price to pay. I mean, here they get deceived and they choose not to obey God and they choose to turn away from God. But see, now your eyes are open to a greater love. For God's love is an unconditional love. God's love is restorative love. God's love is the love that brings us back. So as humanity has turned away from God, in the works of the devil, we know have, have really been the instrument. What are the works of the devil? Where did they start? Well, I don't want to get started where they started chronologically, but for humanity, we would say they started in the Garden of Eden. When they... When the enemy of God, the adversary of our souls, interfered with the relationship and deceived humanity. That's his work. That's what he does. That's his, it's kind of his uh, best work. He's, he's, uh, we'll see in the text to follow that he, he came to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his job description. That's his goal. That's what he wants to do. We know that the Bible tells us from uh, some Old Testament passages and prophecies, uh, Ezekiel and others, you know, that he was functionally a part of the choir, if you would, a worship leader, perhaps you might say, loosely in heaven. And he really thought he could do it his own way, and he got cast out of heaven. And a third of the angels went with him. And so we know he has some capacity of free will, which is very fascinating. But he chose to rebel against God. And then from that moment on, he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry. He literally is a, a created being that is set on interfering with everything that God has. Everything that God does. And so that's why everything that God has created that is good and beautiful, he wants to interfere with. Relationships, he wants to interfere with. You know, sexuality, that's a gift from God. You know what I'm, do you know that? God has designed the human experience and he has brought sexuality into it. And guess what the enemy wants to mess with more than anything else in our culture right now? He wants to confuse people concerning the parameters of, of truly God-designed sexuality. He wants to turn it into whatever you want it to be. 
You can do that. You can make it whatever you want it to be. There's a price to pay when you deviate away from the purpose. And nobody wants to admit that. And even saying that would probably inflame a lot of people just because of the simply the way I said it tonight. But you can't change truth. God has designed it. He has a purpose for that. And any, any, relationships is another good example. Uh, human experience. Do you know it's actually God's design? It's okay with God that we're sitting inside of a building with heat and light? It's not like carnal or catering to the flesh. He gives humanity the capacity to function in a reasonable comfort zone. But we're not to worship that. We're not to make that the most important thing. You see, there's just certain things that God has designed, and the enemy has come in to try to interfere with everything God has placed before us. He's entrusted us with finances and with uh, you know, resources and different things to be used to, to care for our family, to take care of ourselves, to glorify him. To, to, you, know, you see what I'm saying? And, and the enemy wants to get in people's heads so much about giving or not giving or about you know how you do this or how you do that because he just wants to mess with you. That's his desire to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Well, how does he destroy it for you and me? The ultimate victory, which made us overcomers as well, was the cross and the resurrection and his bodily ascension. But he destroys it by using his word in your life. He destroys the works of the devil by bringing truth to you. When I, you and I, when we're, we're before the Lord in a relational way, reading through his word, wanting to be taught, and we want to know, we know that this was something that happens. It's really fascinating. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Not just the general truth about salvation, but the personal truth about how to deal with things so you're not literally led off course and in, in finding yourself entertaining the works of the devil. Can we agree? In your life, practically, he'll just show you things that maybe your emotion, maybe your attitude, whatever it may be, the word comes alive. And he shows, listen, Dan, you're you're entertaining the works of the devil. You're not tied to that anymore. You've been set free. The shackles are loose. Stop going back to that place and, and living in that because you're familiar. Walk away. You know, let's move to the next one. Well, you see there in Hebrews chapter two on your handout, I'll read it. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So he, he lived as you and I. It goes on to say that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. The, the devil's power was death. For any clear thinking person, death scares you if you're not born again. It should, because you don't know what's going to happen. And it's a fear, and people can be contained and constrained and, and manipulated by fear. But Jesus conquered death and hell. He took away that particular weapon the enemy would use. And, and it, it literally, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, he nailed it to a cross, to the cross. He's victorious. And so he has come to take away those tools, if you would, the power of the devil. Let's look at the second point on your handout. Looking at the purposes of his coming, of the first advent. Advent means arrival. So he came to save, not to condemn. We know this. Most of us, obviously, we, we were familiar with John three sixteen and, and carry into verse 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. So many people have been deceived, maybe because they want to entertain carnal things. I don't know. I don't get into the whole depth of it. But they're convinced that God's condemning them, that God's against them, that, uh, you know, there's just, they've just done too much, or maybe they haven't done enough. I don't know. You know, I hear statements like this. Hey, you know. You interested in, you know, we have our church services are 9 and 11. Oh, I couldn't go to church. The walls would fall down if I went to church. No way, I ain't going in there. Nope. And, and, and it's a kind of a socially acceptable, kind of a humorous presentation. But the heart is usually like, no, I'm, I'm worse than you think I am. I'm a worse person than you are. God, God would have nothing to do with me. He knows what I did as a teenager. He knows what happened in that situation when I was 20. 
God, if he knows everything, then he knows me. I, no, he's, he, he wouldn't accept me. But do you see what he says before he says God did not come to condemn the world? God so loved the world that he actually proved that love by bringing, by giving his son, whoever believes in him would not perish with everlasting life. So he didn't come to save, but to con- he came to save and not to condemn. I find it so fascinating that that's listed there in John three seventeen. He, I didn't come to condemn the world. And so many people, they're just, they're, they've been, that's a work of the enemy to convince them that they're not good enough or whatever, that, you know, God is like not going to deal kindly with them. Let's move on to our, our third point, considering the purposes of his coming. He came that you may have abundant life. Once again, when you realize he's not against you, it opens your eyes to what he offers you. When we can, can realize he's not against us. Now, that doesn't mean he approves and condones and is okay with whatever we do. He's not against us and that he invites us into a relationship. But we don't get to tell him how the relationship will be. See, there's an element of surrender. We can't just bring in our own attitude or our position or opinion and, well, you know how I am, God. Like, yeah, I know how you are. That's why you're headed to hell. That's why you need me because you need forgiveness. You need to let go of that. You need new life. God did not invite us to a cleaned up life. A a born-again experience is not a cleaned up life. It's not a getting your act together. It's not a doing things right. It's being dead and born again. You know, Paul said it so beautifully. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He realized he had to die. That old nature couldn't be like on life support. It had to die. And so, you know, realizing that truth that when you're born again, that old nature is dead. And that doesn't mean it's not influential. It's still, there's still residual, almost like a memory but it doesn't have any power over you anymore. He came that we may have abundant life. You know, God's not against us. Here's what Jesus said. You have it listed there in John 10, 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. Who's the thief? Well, thief is someone that's stealing something that belongs to someone else. And so the thief we know manifested in the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent to steal the relationship from humanity, to steal from God, to steal you know, us to where we would be ripped off and robbed. So he's saying he, this is what a thief does. And it's one of those almost like a parable. He's taking a real life example that you could relate to. You done, that culture, this culture, we understand what a thief does. They steal things. They're sneaky, they're crafty, and they want to get your stuff. The thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, which means no concern for life, just for theft. Now he contrasts it. I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. He is saying, I have come that you may have an abundant life. Abundant life doesn't speak of numerics. In other words, it does. it's not talking about having a lot of stuff. It's, it's really more quality of life than quantity of life, if you would. It doesn't mean you're going to necessarily live longer. It, there is some proverbs and some other things that when put into practice, the probability of a longer life is a lot better. But abundant life speaks of this quality of life. Because we know, you, you, we know it in our community. You, you, if you've traveled much, you've seen it in other places. The amount of stuff is not a good measure of how good your life is. Because you can have stuff, but for too long, stuff has you, correct? So having stuff is not really a very good measure. It, it, I, don't, I don't really have an issue with stuff. I have an issue with stuff when stuff is what I work for, live for, move for, it, when it has me. So that's not a measure of abundant. What's abundant? Well, I think it's speaking of what's important to God. And, and, and this quality of life is, is a life that has compassion, it has concern, it has empathy, it has interest in people to where that really is, is, is a bigger issue. You still have to deal with the, the stuff, but, but Jesus is concerned about people. That's why he saves us, that's why he died on the cross. He's concerned about people. And there's really nothing that'll, that'll um, 
give you joy. Not, no, one, no thing can give you joy like people can. You know why I can prove that? Because nothing will tear your heart up more than people will. You can lose all kinds of stuff. You could go flat broke and you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps or whatever. You could just get by. But the loss of relationships, the hurt that people can bring, the different things there, there's, we know, I, I, everybody in here, a lot of you got gray hair, so you know exactly what I'm talking about, that it just, just rips your heart out because people are important to you. And I would suggest because you're born again. You know, if you're not born again, then sometimes when people do you wrong, you're like, fine, I don't care if I ever see them again in my life. And you can become very embittered because you don't have that love. That same love doesn't reside in you. But this abundant life, when we learn to love, when we learn to love outside of ourselves, is such a, it's a, I can't describe it. I, I know it because I've experienced it. I, I've loved people beyond the way I would love people. Yeah, I know a few of you here and you know what I'm talking about. Your love limit stops about right here, about one step. And God's calling you to like 50 yards over there and loving in a way that you know your limit right here. This is about as far as I can go with that type of person. From now on, I'll just avoid them. But God said, well, let me teach you something else. Let me show you how my love that's in you, because it's a different love. That love resonating and changing not only the heart, but the, the mind that we're no longer conformed to the things of this world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds that we then discern and we learn and we prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Read Romans 12 verses 1 and 2 and you'll see it. They were like, man, this is, I'm learning to love. It's not that you're a doormat. It's not that you should be just, people can wipe your feet on you and treat you different. It's just, there's something to having that, to being tapped into that kind of love, to be able to forgive, to be able to move on, to be able to really um, extend mercy and grace and hope, to live sacrificially. It, it produces a joy that everything in this world is against. It's a sense of abundance. It's a type of life that is so much greater. But everything in this world is self-driven. It, it, I mean, we even have magazines called Self. Okay, so you can get to know yourself better. I, I mean, but it's a huge market. Billions and billions of dollars are, are spent on the, the pleasure of self. And even in Christian circles, there's this perception, well, you know, you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of anybody else. Okay, you've totally tweaked that to make it your own thing. Because that reality is, yeah, yeah, you do have to be right before the Lord. But Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I have to have a relationship with Christ. I have to be led by him. That's the part of taking care of myself. But I also have to learn how to serve and love in the way he is. To experience this abundant life. A life that just doesn't fit my logic. It does not fit the natural reasoning of this world. It doesn't make sense that you can give away and have more, right? I mean, if you love and you extend yourself, people will step on you. That's true. But something happens because of your relationship with him. As you extend and you live more sacrificially as he's teaching you, you actually strengthen and equipped. And in your weakness, you experience his touch. And when you say, I won't forgive, I won't deal with that person, I won't. And then he says, well, I dealt with you. I went to the cross for you. Why would you not extend that to them? I don't know how. I don't want to. Well, but that's what I'm teaching you. Do you want me to teach you? Yes. No. <laughs> I kind of do. I kind of don't. I hope that's your conversation with the Lord because that's real. Don't get all King James, I will do what thou sayest, O Lordeth. You know, just because some people really get that way. They have a, a Christian jargon in their prayer life. Be real. I don't, I don't know how to live this abundant life. If it means learning to live sacrifice, I don't know how to do that. Guess what? He knows you don't know how to do it. He doesn't go, what? From heaven, the angels are like, oh, no. Wings flapping around their face, covering their eyes. Oh, my gosh, the guy doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, obviously, God's like, I know that. That's the beauty. I teach you how to love. And live this abundant life. His desire is we have an abundant life. And it begins in the heart and not in the head. It begins where transformation can actually take root and grow. And it can help us weather storms. It can help us release from addictions. It can help us change behavior. It's a whole new life. 
That's his desire for us. And it's just sad when sometimes, I look at my life, there's sad, times I've just settled for less than he's desired. Less than he's offered even. It's like kind of a bummer. Verse John chapter 3, verse 5 on your handout. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. He manifested, being brought, made known. He came to being, he lived this life of the Savior to take away our sins. Think about that. Forgive you of your sins. I love that deal. That's a pretty good deal. But if I'm forgiven of something, but it's still in the garage, and I know I messed something up, but every time I walk through the garage, it's still there, it's kind of hard to kind of live the new life, right? But what are we told there? To take away our sins. And we find in Scripture that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. As far as, he's just like, listen, take it away. And so there's some things, that I know some people here, and then even listening online, you know, there's some things that you, you need to realize. He, he's taking it away. Don't go looking for it. Learn to move forward. As it says in Philippians, letting go or neglecting, forgetting those things which are behind, and pressing forward to the things which are ahead. Literally keeping your eyes on Jesus and moving forward. Let's take a look at the last one here we have on our handout. He came that your joy may be full. I've listed it as God's version of reality TV. I don't know where they come up with that term, but it's a common thing for like probably what, 10 years? They call this reality TV. It's like, I don't know what world you live in, but here's these things, like they put them on an island and they're going to be living on a reality, you know, so I, how many, am I offending people about reality TV? Because <laughs> it's like, what reality is that? But there's a, I think it's because people want to live differently they want to kind of have some different experience, if you would, like, it's kind of like escape their reality. But here's God's version. You're set free from sin. That's his reality. You, knowing his love, his forgiveness, his presence and power, a real life change because you are a child of the king. Look what it says in, in the verse you have highlighted there, John 15, 11. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he makes this statement. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Think about the wording of that. His joy is in you. In other words, that won't be taken away. I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. In other words, I can drain it, or I can somehow maybe lose it. I don't know. But it speaks of this this overflowing joy with the knowledge of the Lord, to be aware of who he is and how he is. He came that our joy may be full. And I don't think historically, it, it's not very often that that's listed as one of the visible distinctives or apparent or visible characteristics of Christians. They're so joyful. Is that true? Could we say that Christians are always so joyful? Not really. A lot of them are sourpusses. Seriously, they're kind of got a sour face. You know, Jesus loves you. Like, who? Is that what happens when he loves you? It's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to do that. You know, it's like, I don't get it. Because ultimately, and I'm not talking about a facade or a pretentious face, but the joy of the Lord is our strength. And there's so much the Bible speaks of about joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because you weren't paying attention the first time, again, I'll say rejoice. That, that's kind of what it says in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. It's, there's a choice to rejoice and recognize that his joy is in us. And it's his desire that it would be full, that it would be, I, I would say, even overflowing. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, maybe you've met people that just are smiling and happy all the time. I don't know what wires unplugged in their head, but they're just smiling and happy all the time. No matter if it's bad or good, they're just like, hey, it'll be okay. Like, oh my gosh, get you a straight jacket. You know, just, yeah, I'm thinking, I, maybe I'm just a mean person. Well, most of them, but I don't know. I'm just thinking, well, some people just, they kind of always see it that way. And then there's people that are always sour. And maybe in between and more towards this other side is where the joy is present and expressive. And, and we're like, you know, it's been a tough run. It's been a tough year. It's been a hard quarter. But 
you know, I guess I just see God's hand. He's strengthened me. And, and just in their conversation, they don't have to laugh. Their conversation conveys there's a calmness. There's a peace that surpasses understanding. It can't be explained. They have a joy even through hardship. Because that's one of our, best, our biggest testimonies. Do you know the early church prayed that they would be worthy to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ? It was their desire that they would be worthy to suffer. Because in their suffering, not that they were masochistic and wanting pain, but in their suffering they realized God's strength is made manifest. It's, it's evident. So I don't sign up for extra suffering, but I do know in the suffering something shines through and it's not me and it's not you. It's him. It's his joy shines through. So we are going to close it down right there. And I've asked Greg, because of how we finished with joy being last, I really want to, we're going to sing joy to the world. But before we sing that, as Greg works his way up here, um, joy to the world. How? I mean, how is there joy to the world? And, And I'm not trying to make that song scripture. I'm just taking the content of that song. The Lord has come. That's why there's joy to the world. The Lord has come. And then the next one, let earth receive her king. The current popular people and presidents and monarchs and goofballs and all these other things that they think they run the countries and run their corporations and all that, they're not kings. They're pawns and the prince of this age and that prince is under the king of all kings. Let earth receive her king. You know, we can receive the king. Things aren't going to change. Let every, I love this verse, let every heart prepare him room. Isn't that cool? I mean, that really is the declaration I prepare. I want, I want to have, and if I could think of it in an in a, uh, illustration or maybe the symbolism of it, I, I just want to have more room in my heart for the Lord. You know, I, I, I just don't want to get too me oriented. I, I want to have a pliable heart of, the Bible says of the Corinthians, um, Paul wrote to them, he said, our hearts were wide open to you, which really means they're, they're unhindered, unrestricted, that the hearts would be shaped in such a way that the lives would reflect the, the presence and the love of God. So why don't you stand with me, and uh, I'll pray, and then we'll sing together. Greg's going to lead us, because that's going to sound better. God, we just thank you so much for your word. And so much of this is such a refresher course and a reminder and, and yet new things being revealed. And Holy Spirit, I know you've spoken to each one of us and you've stirred consideration and pondering and wondering. And, and some things were resistant and you know that. And some things were eager to see. Lord, I just ask that you would just teach each one of us what it means to walk in truth, what it means to know you As your word says, Lord, may we even request that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. You are the Christ. To you be the glory, both now and forever. So be it, Lord. We sing to you tonight in your name. Amen.